I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. This week, uh, two guests, two terrific guests, uh, two really, uh, two conversations I really enjoyed. First up is J.A. Donde. He is the Director of Sports Journalism at the Medill School at Northwestern University. I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast will certainly know him from his longtime work at ESPN, both as a writer as well as a uh, on-air commentator for Around the Horn, part of the interruption, NBA coverage. Jay also used to write for the Los Angeles Times, one of the great NBA uh, columnists uh, uh, and general columnists of, of his era. So he's first, and he's followed by Jeff Gluck, who works with me at The Athletic. Uh, Jeff Gluck is one of the preeminent voices on NASCAR. And in this conversation, um, Jay and I talk about uh, the last couple of weeks in America and the nexus of sports and politics and sports and social justice and sports and race and uh, the coverage of that. And then we get into Jay's work at Northwestern and just what are young people who want to go into this profession right now? What are they thinking? Are they optimistic? Uh, they're certainly passionate, but you know they see all the stuff surrounding them, including layoffs this week at my place, The Athletic. And what are they thinking? Do they feel like they can have careers in this business. And then um, Jeff Gluck and I uh, discussed the uh, NASCAR's decision to prohibit the display of the Confederate flag from all NASCAR events and properties, what that means, how that will be covered, um, and everything that went into uh, that decision in the aftermath. So two really good guests, two very prominent people in my business, J.A. Adande and Jeff Gluck, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, we now bring in Jay Adande. He is the Director of Sports Journalism at the Medill School at Northwestern University. People listening to this podcast certainly know him from his work, longtime work at ESPN, as well as the LA Times. Jay, it's a little early for you in the Midwest. I appreciate you waking up for me. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be back on. I know you had me on when I just started Northwestern four years ago, and I told you, okay, well, I don't really want to come back until I have some more to talk about. Uh, boy, do we have a lot to talk about now. <laughs> I didn't think it was going to be this much on the plate to discuss, but uh, let's get into it. And uh, four years, it's like 28 years and dog years, Jay. That's what it feels like for, uh, for everybody. <laughs> These last two weeks have been four years. Exactly. So where I want to start, uh, so, you know, sort of a sobering question, but um, I, I, I want to start here with you. And that is how have you, and you can go anywhere you want with this, how, how have you processed the last two weeks in the United States of America? It, it's been this, this pent up release, I think, of, of so much that, that's been going on. And certainly from the sports perspective, and everyone has seen it and discussed it, this realization that 
okay, this is what Colin Kaepernick was talking about. And, and why did it take more deaths for his point to be made and for him to be heard and, and the, those who kneeled were kneeling along with him? Uh, it, it shouldn't have taken more. And, and, and I'm, I'm sad. And I, the saddest I got was when I realized, you know what, if we had just listened and paid attention, maybe George Floyd would be alive or maybe some of these other people would, would be alive right now if we had taken some real dramatic measures to, to reform the way we police in the state. And it, it's sad that there, there's additional bloodshed, um, and there continues to be even after the death of George Floyd. So sadness, um, regret, excitement, even at the, at the energy that we've seen, hope at the, the number of white people who have really taken up the cause and express the need to change that have marched and have put themselves on the line. Um, all, all these things are, are, are mixed into it. Uh, I've, I've been realizing lately as, as I look back on my own life and, and personally, and, and as you look at the world, things tend to get worse before they get better and um, economic cycles and everything else. And I'm wondering if we, if we reach that point of worse, and if we're at a point of better. And when I think about all of this, uh, number one takeaway is seeing change. And it's, it's rare that you see moments change. And this is a historic time, I think. And we, we went through a lot of revision and revisiting, I should say, of 1968 a couple of years ago. As we were 50 years past 1968 and celebrating or, or honoring a number of anniversaries from 1968. And... I always wondered what it would be like to be in that time. And I feel like we're getting a small taste of it at these moments when, when the country is, is undergoing these seismic shifts. And I think 2020 will, will go down as, as one of the seismic shifts in our country. Yeah, that's well said. I wasn't alive in 1968. My mom recently passed away. I wish I could ask her about it because I know that she uh, took parts in protests in the 60s in, in Brooklyn and Manhattan. And I, I think you've nailed it. I think it you know, at least from reading and sort of seeing videos, it, it has that same kind of same kind of feel. Uh, I gotta be honest with you, sort of the summer has the same kind of feel coming up as as well. Both of us work in sports, JA, and um, and you've written a lot about this during the course of your journalism career. And that's you know the nexus of sports and social justice, the nexus of sports and race, the nexus of sports and politics. It's inescapable right now. I mean, literally. Every single day, we we are sort of seeing this nexus exist. Um, I've always been one. I don't I don't think it's any kind of big statement that like <laughs> sort of has always understood. I think and acknowledged that like sports and politics are intertwined. They're they're inescapable. And I believe if you sort of don't acknowledge that, you're you're just not being honest when it comes to history. You know, Jesse Owens, Tommy Smith, uh, um, um, Jackie Robinson. You know, and then Colin Kaepernick in modern times. I mean, there's just Ali. There's just too many examples. And and but and here's where the butt comes, J.A. How do you cover this stuff, which I feel like you have a duty to do journalistically and editorially, knowing that some of your consumers of your product, whether that's at ESPN or in my case, uh, The Athletic and Sportsnet in Toronto, are not going to be happy if you cover this? I'm really not that concerned if they're not happy. But 
people are always going to be unhappy. And I keep going back to what Charles Brockauer says. 50% of the people are going to love you. 50% of the people are going to hate you, no matter what. No matter how you do it, no matter what you say. And maybe that ratio and those percentages change. But there's always going to be a, a certain percentage that, A, disagrees with you, or, or B, is offended by the, the very fact that, that you brought it up. But to me, you just have to pursue your truth. And if journalism is about pursuit of the truth and if writing columns is, which was what I was doing for the bulk of my career and, you know, 20 plus years, that's your, your perspective and your opinion and the world as you see it. And so a, it's bringing everything into it, right? All the influences on you, all your interests. So it could be music, art, movies. So that shapes the way you look at the world. And then you have to engage with the world at large. And so that, that means getting into to politics. It's interesting. Uh, you, uh, California is revisiting Proposition 209, which basically did away with affirmative action for, as, for the admissions process, uh, in particular with the University of California system. And that had drastic results. And I wrote about it back then. In 1997, 98, I think, is when it went into effect. And so I wrote a column about that in the L.A. Times. What was that doing in the sports section in L.A. Times? Well, my, my entree into that, and it was a huge heated debate back then, but my entree was that this proposition is basically playing into the stereotype that if you see a black person, particularly a black male on campus, he's there on athletic scholarship. And what happened was I looked at UCLA in particular, and the number of black students admitted went from 500 to 300 in the first year of Prop 209. Those are approximate numbers. And then uh, the number of students who enrolled, if you, if you figured it out, it was about 65 black males were in the freshman class out of 4,200 students. And I went through the media guides, and I think 20 of them were, um, were on athletic scholarship on the football and basketball team. It was basically like 25% of the black males in the um, UCLA freshman class that year were on athletic scholarship. So, so you're right back to, to the old stereotype. You're feeding into it. And you're basically saying the way for black men to get into UCLA is by playing sports. We don't value them for anything else but uh, what they can do for, for the sports programs. And so that was, you know, writing about the issues of the time and the larger issues 20 years ago. And yes, the political issues. I mean, you can't get more political than a proposition that, that was on the state ballot. Um, so it, it, it's, it's been that. And, and, it's, it's been important and, and higher education as you've seen in my career choice, it's something that, that is important to me. And so, yeah, there were, there were people that were upset. Um, I didn't have any pushback from my bosses, but I did. Um, yeah. A lot, a lot of people were wondering, why are you writing about that? You should be so political, all this, that, the other, uh, I need to, it's important to tell these stories and, um, I, I'm a citizen and I'm engaged and, and, um, you know, the number one thing I've always wanted to see was equality, whether that's equal opportunities for black coaches, whether that's um, equal pay for, for women's national soccer team. Uh, I, I just want to see equality and see people have equal opportunities. And that's something that's always going to extend beyond sports. This is um, this is literally in the news, Jay, as we're taping this podcast. I want to get your thoughts on this, both from uh, sort of a how it's covered perspective, a journalistic perspective, as well as somebody who now works on a campus, Northwestern, because 
I see this uh, rising player power as a, as a pretty interesting issue. Yesterday, um, Chuba Hubbard, who is a star running back for Oklahoma State, um, put on his Twitter feed basically how um, upset he was at his coach Mike Gundy wearing a um, um, an OAN shirt. He, he, Chuba Hubbard did not sort of mention OAN, but it, it seemed very clear um, that he was he was upset about that because the photo he cited in his tweet was Mike Gundy wearing that. Um, you know, for people who are actually interested, many pieces from the New York Times and others who have examined OAN and and some of the absolute pure shit that they are putting out on that channel. Um, it was interesting to watch, uh, Jay, in real time, um, the support that Chuba got, the backlash certainly that he got, both from people as well as um, some media types, and then Mike Gundy eventually putting out a video with Chuba saying that there were going to be some sort of changes that needed to be made, and it starts at the top. It, there's no specifics on that, but the, I'm sure Oklahoma State put that video out to sort of quell stuff. But this was very interesting to me, J.A. In, in real time, we watched player power in the college ranks sort of be displayed. This feels very, very new, feels a little revolutionary, and I think it's going to be something that journalists are going to have to cover, uh, I, I would say in the immediate term, because I think we're going to see more of this. Um, and so that's a that's my sort of intro to ask you in a macro perspective. How did you see what happened with Chuba Hubbard, and how do you relate it to maybe what's going to happen with some college athletes as we head forward? What's been fascinating to me is this is really showing the power of words. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll get into this Oklahoma State story, but to me the, the Iowa story is really fascinating with the, the strength and conditioning coach, who is now the former strength and conditioning coach, the longtime strength conditioning coach, Chris Doyle, I believe his name, and he uh, had, I guess, a reputation for saying at the very least insensitive things, you know, ranging all the way up to racist uh, caricatures and, and interactions with, with the black players at Iowa on the football team. And this had been going on for a long time. And you saw players just feel empowered to speak out about it and tweeting about it and, and discussing it. And it resulted in first a, a sort of a suspension, I guess. And then ultimately they announced that they were going to part ways with him um, at the cost of over a million dollars, as Brett McMurphy reported. So uh, a very consequential action that took place, it was able to, to, you know, there was no walkout, there was no protest movement, no boycott, simply by speaking up. And and I think what's understood now is that the, the athletes realize that they do have power. And we've seen the power of the people. We've seen changes happen already with legislation, with police reforms. Um, we've, we've seen people, I've been calling it about the paint week or about the paint month because... Um, Grant Napier, the Kings broadcaster, Sacramento Kings, the NBA, a three-word reply or three words in his reply to DeMarcus Cousins when he dropped an All Lives Matter into DeMarcus Cousins' replies, that got him out the paint. Three words, and he was gone. And um, so the, the, the power of, you know, watch what you say right now. There's hypersensitivity. So one wrong statement, one insensitive statement can cost you your job. 
but also people feel empowered to speak out and to, to speak to the truth. And, you know, it's very reminiscent of the Me Too movement, right? That, that sense that I can speak. Maybe even if I had a non-disclosure agreement, I'm going to speak out at the risk of losing that non-disclosure agreement. But I'm going to let people know what has been going on. And so for, for women victim of sexual harassment, sexual assault, that moment, and we saw the power, and we saw very powerful people being removed as a result of that. And, I'm, and I, don't, I haven't seen a lot written about that, but I, I do think we have to take that in consideration, how we got here. Um, and I think that Me Too movement set the stage for the place we're at now. But seeing the people feel empowered and seeing actions taking place as a result of simply speaking out. And, and maybe the words have more power because we've, we've seen the, the turbulence in the streets. We, we've, we've seen the destruction of property. We, we've seen vandalism even. So we, we've seen what happens when people are ignored for too long. And there was a lot of pent-up frustration and a lot of opportunism, opportunism too. But, but as a result of that, as, you know, the world and the country are listening and paying attention. And as it pertains to this corner of the world, athletes are realizing that our voices can be heard, that we are of immense value to the university. We're, we're seeing that as these universities are, are trying to ramp up their sports programs and football programs in particular before we've even really decided what we're going to do about having students on campus. But they've made it clear, and Mike Gundy was the one who put it in the barest terms that we need to get money flowing through the state of Oklahoma again. Uh, we, we need this cash cow going. So the realization that, okay, you're not having a football season without us signing off on it. And therefore that makes us powerful. And also more so than ever before, the voices of African-Americans are being heard. And so we're going to use these platforms and we're going to speak out. We see something that's wrong, that's wrong, that offends us. We're going to call it out. The University of Texas athletes, all coming together saying we want changes, a multitude of changes, including uh, we don't want to be forced to sing the eyes of Texas are upon you because of some of the uh, minstrel show origins of the original source song for that. So it's the power of words. And, and as a journalism professor, that's very exciting to me. And, and I think it reinforces what we're trying to do. Words have a tremendous amount of power and We've seen that more than at any other recent time between the Me Too movement and this, the power of words. Jay, um, one one sort of question, uh, one more question on this, and then we'll sort of get into what you're doing at Northwestern. Um, and I would put the athletic in this, although um, certainly not in the same sort of situation as an ESPN or Fox, uh, who are rights holders. Can... Can these issues, when it comes to college athletics and player uh, power and player remuneration, and certainly in in what Chuba Hubbard and others sort of are talking about the you know the how one is treated uh, in an athletic program, how <laughs> whether whether they should even be playing given COVID-19 and that they're social distancing in the crowd, but not social distancing the athletes. Can an ESPN who has so many uh, financial relationships with all these conferences, can a Fox, same thing, can the CBS, can those outlets honestly cover this moment or ultimately 
they will be the broadcasters of these games, and it's going to have to be more independent outlets who examine this. And I ask you this because obviously you had a long tenure tenure at ESPN, and you, you would be more familiar with the internal dynamics than I am. I will say this. I think two of the more important journalistic works were done outside of the rights holder sphere, and those were the stories by Sports Illustrated, your former employer, when they did the expose of Jerry Richardson, which resulted in him giving up an NFL franchise. That doesn't happen very often or very easily. But through their reporting, the story dropped on like on a Sunday. And a couple hours later, he said, yeah, I'm going to put up the team. I'm not even going to try to fight this. But uh, yeah, I'm put the Panthers are for sale. Um, incredible piece of journalistic work. And that the detailed the, the allegations of um, sexual harassment and um, racial comments that Jerry Richardson made. And then the examination of the Dallas Mavericks and the, the workplace culture um, and the, the, the sexism that was pervasive in, in the Dallas Mavericks office. And I don't think it was a coincidence that we're both done by Sports Illustrated. And of course, I, I wonder if we'll see that type of work done by Sports Illustrated under the current ownership and management, um, if we'll see that type of commitment. Um, but I, I do note that, and I don't think that was a coincidence. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm concerned that are there enough independent outlets or at least outlets that, that aren't partners with these entities? Um, you know, ESPN is partners with all the major sports outlets, um, Fox and the NFL or CBS with the NFL. Um, or their college football rights, all those things. Um, you, you can't ignore those, those financial partnerships, and um, and especially at a time when the rights are everything, right? The the amount of money that's being spent, and um, you know the, the the key that those hold to ratings. The, the tele sports TV rights are the most important thing on live television. Now that you could argue that that's what's supporting live television when, when we have sports. So um, I think it's, it's fair and right to be skeptical about whether we'll really get that, that type of journalism, um, that, that, that type of probing from the um, from right source. I will say this. Uh, I, I did a panel on the, on the NFL Network, and the NFL Network, literally owned by the NFL, has been – very forward and very frank in their discussions of of what's going on and the NFL's response and Colin Kaepernick and all of that's on the table. And I noticed even in the um, the reporting that Ezekiel Elliott of the Dallas Cowboys that tested positive for COVID nineteen, um, and I went and that that was reported on the NFL website, which was surprising to me because I'm not even sure that. I wasn't even sure that legally they could. You know, I, I, I don't think you're necessarily be allowed to report and, and confirm. You know, I, I don't think the Dallas Cowboys confirmed it, but the fact that... No, his agent did. His agent did, right. The, the Cowboys said they, they could not, you know, and HIPAA laws and privacy and all that. I get that. But I was surprised that the NFL did that. Because sometimes on these league outlets, they won't even report on free agency until, you know, like the, the official team site won't even say, hey, you know, the Nets got Kevin Durant until it's officially signed, right? Um, but on the NFL website, they had a headline that, that Zico Elliott. So that's encouraging to me. 
that the NFL is able to report on this. And and we we we've, we've seen a lot of reporting. We we we've seen you know back and forth ESPN looking at the at, at the, the baseball negotiations, right? I mean, ESPN is, has a tremendous stake in, in, in baseball being played this year. And I think they've been very honest and very critical of the way those have been going. So we, we, we do still see that. And I think we'll continue to see that. But I think the, the heaviest hitting pieces, the real investigation, I still think we might see that come from elsewhere. I hope we'll see that come from elsewhere. And I will say that's well said on the NFL Network. And I, I, I have to, you know, if you're going to be honest, or, um, or if I'm going to be honest, they have they have done things on that network, reporting on that network that I never would have expected to see from a Lego network. And it, it's interesting. I'm, again, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that they're 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 pro public or frontline when it comes to investigating their own stuff, but they're they they do they do push things more. Than I expected. They have great people on there like Jim Trotter and um, Judy Batista, et cetera, who are legit reporters. So it's it's interesting. And I tip my hat to the MLB network at times too, whether it's Tom Verducci or Ken Rosenthal. I don't think they're going to get deep into the into this one per se, given Rob Manfred's statements. But it's we do we are in an interesting time, Jay, where you do find journalism at some league-owned places, um, which is. Which is interesting. I, I just want to say one thing is that I, I feel like we should be covering some of these things in in a from the frame of sports or from the lens of sports. I think we'd all be well served to do that. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Rachel Nichols posted a series of graphs on Twitter charts that that you know showed the uh, I don't know if it's the infection rate or the death rate um, from the United States and three other countries like. Germany, Italy, I think Japan, maybe, um, you know, but basically the other countries, if you look at the graph, it's, it's, you know, it's like, it's like a bell curve, you know, it goes up and comes back down and the United States went up, came back down and then has just plateaued and, um, is not decreasing significantly, significantly. And there was so much debate and discussion and questioning the validity and what that means and getting the semantics, this, that, the other. And I thought, she basically posted the standings, <laughs> you know, that we don't argue about the standings. That's the one thing you don't, you don't argue about in sports is the standings. This team's in first, this team's in second, third, fourth, this team's the last. The United States is in last, right? We've, we've got the most deaths, the most cases. We've got more COVID-19 deaths than the next three countries combined, right? We're in last. <laughs> There's no debating about it. And, and People still want to get into semantics and, oh, well, testing rates, this, that, this. No, we're in last. And it, I don't want to trivialize this matter, which is of utmost importance. But in some cases, we should think of it like sports. And because in sports, what happens when you're last? The coach gets fired, right? I mean, it, it, sports has a way of looking at things and, and the numbers – ultimately tell the final story. One team wins, one team loses. Um, we don't dispute that. We don't dispute who's in first and who's in last. And all the rest of our cultural discussions are, are up for debate when some things shouldn't be up for debate. And, you know, the numbers, e- even if there's some question about, okay, how accurate them, but the, the overall look at the numbers that we have in this country tell a very stark story. And why can't we just 
act on the basis of what the numbers are telling us. And I mean, that should guide policy decision. That should guide our personal behavior. And we've gotten to this point where we can't even agree on the numbers or what they mean. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it's depressing as well as tragic that, uh, we're, we're, in, we're in an anti-science and anti-numerology moment, uh, which is frustrating. Anti-facts. Anti-facts. <laughs> Although I will say that um, I have been pleasantly surprised that Jimmy Pitaro and, and ESPN executives have let their um, talent at the moment, um, or they've trusted their talent to sort of post what they're feeling, um, post treating them like adults and sort of trusting their talent in this moment, we'll see how long it lasts, but, but that's something I've appreciated to see that seeing social media feeds very different the last two weeks than we did, um, we did prior to that. Oh, so I want to ask about sort of, there's a number of things I want to ask about Northwestern. And obviously you have a, a very important position there at Medill, which is, you know, one of the prized, um, journalism schools in the country and, and has produced a lot of sports journalists. So I, I know Jay, you're you're not probably not on campus. You've probably done a lot of stuff via uh, Zoom or FaceTime or video. But you've talked to students now over the last four plus years. Um, for those who are listening here, can can you give us an overview of like where do students' optimism stand right now regarding entering sports journalism? Um, I'm sure their passion exists as, as it did for me and you when we were in our teen, uh, late teens or early 20s. But, but the, the jobs out there are different. The economics are different. So I'd be curious, of what, what, what have you found from today's students? What, what, are, what questions do they ask you? What are they thinking about? What's their optimism in terms of working in this field right now? The passion is still there. The desire is still there. They want to do the same things that, that you and I did. And, and they, they see the value and the the fun and uh, maybe even the increased importance of, of sports journalism. And um, I, I think there's still optimism. It, it's just, it, it's getting harder for me to provide answers to them and to, to say, okay, what the path looks like. And we don't know what, what the, the field is going to be like, um, what the access is going to be like, most importantly, that's, that's my greatest concern are, are the days of locker room access over for the near future or for good. Um, what is covering this, these sports going to be like, um, what team internships are going to be available or, or, or newspaper internships, um, media internships. It, it's, um, it, it's daunting. Um, I think the the role of journalism overall has been elevated. We're, we're seeing that. And so what I'm saying right now for the near term is that, okay, maybe think about yourself as getting into journalism and then you can slide into sports and focus on sports as those opportunities come about. <laughs> really, there's no, there's no sports right now. Um, there, there is no, there are no games to cover. There's no events. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of important negotiations about the terms of playing, um, you know, and in some ways the, the roles of the, the Woads and Chris Haynes and, um, you know, Jeff Passan and baseball and, and Ken Rosenthal, all those guys has never been more important um, because that's really where all the negotiations of the back backroom negotiations are where it's at. 
Um, but what's it going to look like once the games resume and, and, you know, limited amount of people are even allowed in the building. If even Mike Breen and <laughs> Kevin Harlan and company aren't going to be there in the building, um, what's it going to be like? So it, it, it's daunting because I, I don't have the answers. Um, one thing I can say is, you know, the importance of diversifying your toolbox and, and thinking way beyond just analysis of the games. And um, for, for example, right now, I think a key story is, is liability. So if you have legal expertise or perspective or can get access to those who do, what's the liability look like? What, what's the situation? How liable are leagues or universities for if one of their athletes gets COVID-19 in the, in the course of, of playing for the team? I think that's a huge question right now. I have no answers. For it. I, don't, I don't know. That. I haven't seen that story. Uh, mental health is going to continue to be just health in general right now. Um, so think about it sports and, or this and sports. Um, what, what are your outside areas of expertise? And one thing at Medill, and I'm sure this applies to a lot of other schools, is the majority of the classes are outside of journalism. So it is important to be more well-rounded. And you will have a well-rounded education. And then even in our master's program, if you're in the sports specialization, it's only 25% of your classes are sports. So you're still being trained primarily as a journalist. And I think that's never been more vital to, to be a journalist. We've had some of our recent graduates, I'm looking at their work. Um, you know, we had a writer, sports writer, Chicago Sun-Times, who was covering the protests and then spent a day in court covering some of the court cases that came out of the protests um, and then was back on the streets covering protests again. Um, you know, so many people have been, been called into, into action and duty um, covering all, all the other aspects of this. Uh, you know, we've seen like the Washington Post, Candace Buckner covering protests or, um, you know, Robert Klemko um, flying around the country doing this. So, Especially right now, being able to show your versatility, but I, I still think going forward, and I, I just think going, uh, you know, the media job market, there's going to be more opportunities in news. News has never been more important than right now. Um, sports, never less important than right now. So I think you have to ask yourself, are you interested in journalism or sports? And um, there's still plenty of opportunities in journalism, and then you can eventually, I think, work your way over to sports and focus on that. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see where else we, we go from there. Also, also just even in sports journalism, non-traditional uh, or, or working for teams, which has been the primary job opportunities that we've seen lately. Uh, or, you know, I think gambling will pick back up when we have sports. It might become even more important as the, the actual experience of going to games. You know, I, I, I wonder if people will, will, Will even if they want to interact, if they want to be involved in sports, will gambling take the place of actually attending the event? And if so, you know the, the rise in, in gambling media, I think, will continue. Um, esports, we, we've seen we've seen an emphasis on esports. So, thinking of these jobs that didn't exist a few years ago, of being a, a play-by-play person for an esports game, which is a thing now, which wasn't five, ten years ago. So that's something to consider. So just thinking outside the traditional scope of what sports journalism was for maybe me and you, 
Uh, that's really what I'm trying to emphasize to students now. Jay, can you give me a sense that, and again, Northwestern is just would be one sort of small slice of, uh, of a journalism program. Um, you know, you'd have to get the data from across the country to really have a better sense. But f- at least from your uh, stretch, um, what are you seeing in terms of young uh, journalists of color, uh, young people of color um, regarding entering the profession? Do you have a lot of students of, of color there? Um, are they interested in sports? You know, one of the things, obviously, I don't have to tell you that like one of the issues that seemingly has been going on in sports journalism, <laughs> probably it feels like since the beginning of time, is just a lack of diversity in newsrooms, a lack of diversity hires. So um, at least in terms of the pipeline from your world, what is it like or what does it look like, at least at Northwestern? It's gone down, which is alarming to me, the, the uh, you know particular number of African-American students that we have in the sports specialization. Um you know, when I first got there, it was um, surprisingly high. And, um, you know, it's gone down, even though that's been a, you know, a focus of mine, or a major priority of mine. Um, so I, I can't explain all of the reasons why. Um, you know, one thing, it's, it's expensive. Um, you know, and on, on the other and it, it hasn't been a good time for, for hiring. It, it hasn't been necessarily a, a growth industry, um, you know, maybe the, the athletics run notwithstanding. So, um, you know, I, I, I know there's still interest out there. You know, I see it all the time at the NABJ convention. It, it, it's interesting because I'll say this, Richard, at the National Association of Black Journalists conventions, um, it's, there's a ton of young people who are interested in getting the sports media. So I, so I know overall it's still out there. I'm, I'm not sure, you know, maybe how that's reflected in, in terms of going to graduate school. Um, maybe that's shifted. Maybe that might shift back. One of the selling points we're saying right now is that in this economic downturn, it might not be a bad time to, to sort of take yourself out of the market and study and get an advanced degree and be better positioned when things reopen. So that, that's kind of our selling point right now. Um, but I, there's a lot of young people, young people of color who really want to get into this. And um, the, the, yeah, the numbers at NABJ are huge. And when I look at our, we, we do a sports mentor breakfast every year and it used to be four or five tables and now it's a gigantic ballroom filled and um, there's so many young people, and it feels like the majority of the people are there are young people trying to get into business. So overall, I think there's an interest, there's a desire, there's a passion to do this. So they're out there. Um, you know, the numbers have, have been really bad. It's one of the, these reckonings that we're having nationally right now is, is okay, and what do the numbers look like in, in media? And are they reflective of, of our society and our sports media numbers reflective of our society and, and of obviously the number of African-Americans participating in, in some of the major sports. So um, they're out there. And, and my big concern is that diversity is usually a byproduct of prosperity. Things aren't very prosperous right now. So uh, what will we see? What, what type of toll will this take 
on the diversification of media. Um, a lot of times when when things start getting cut, you see who the, who the first to, to go. Yeah, it's well said. I hope, uh, you know, I hope in my sort of last years of journalism, we start to see newsrooms uh, reflect better the, the, the population and the demographics uh, at large and the growing demographics. It also, I mean, whatever, this is, it, it's sort of, it's been said a million times, it's been said because it's true, it just makes your newsroom better, it makes it more reflective of, of the constituency that, uh, that you're covering. But, you know, we have had a lot of these same conversations. Uh, it feels like for, uh, for quite some time. I think it feels different right now, though. Well, it, yeah, I agree. I, the, 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 moment, the moment feels different, J.A., but, and I'm not even trying to be a skeptic. The, the moment is certainly different. I feel like we're at a massive inflection moment in the country, but until the hires actually happen, I tend to be a cynic a little bit. And, you know, like I have to ultimately like the moment has to sort of have fruition in terms of hirings. And then it gets into a larger discussion, like you said, about, well, you know, hedge funds are, 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 are buying newspapers. They're hemorrhaging those newspapers where, you know, every place is at layoffs, including, including mine. So in the middle of a pandemic, there's no safe Harbor. And what's even scary is, you know, will there be hiring, a year from now, two years from now, will there be new places that even open up? I, I will say that, and and this has been a re- realization of how things go in cycles, and and things get worse and they get better. Is there was there was so much gloom and doom right before I graduated college. So the year before '91, there's the economic downturn, the national folds, and and everyone just thought that was it for the industry. And the '90s turned out to be the greatest time in sports media history you had the growth of sports radio espn really hit its peak and then at the end of the decade you had the internet and all the opportunities that created and then at the start of the 2000s you had pti and all those sports talk shows that made sports columnists a lot of money and so it's, it's even gloomier now and but i wonder if there's an unexpected peak like nobody saw the 90s coming in 1991 nobody was talking about how the next 10 years were going to be such a great run for sports media and nobody sees any good things on the horizon right now I, you know i don't know if we'll have the equivalent of the internet I, I think what we're doing right now podcasting is is something that's just i think there's still a lot of room for growth in, in that space and that's something that we weren't talking about five or ten years ago so I just hold open the possibility that things will will repeat in that regard, and that there there can be an unexpected boom um, in something that I'm not smart enough to see coming. <laughs> uh, but I'm just optimistic enough. I'm just barely optimistic enough to think that that there can be something good, and there can be some opportunities that we're just not seeing right now, and and there will be ways of telling stories. Um, that that these young people will be positioned to capitalize on because they've grown up in social media. They've grown up using video skills. You know, TikTok, the, the skills people are utilizing for TikTok, those are, if not now, very soon, are monetizable, right? You can have careers doing this, this type of stuff, or you can, you can make a name for yourself and, and get a career in traditional media. So, so many of these things that, people are just doing on their own that they're doing for fun, I think are actually sharpening skills 
that they'll be able to to utilize and and I think there will be a marketplace for them. So in that regard, again, just having seen things cycle up and down before, I I'm at least aware of the possibility. I'm not ruling out the possibility that that there can be exciting opportunities for young people. Yeah, I try to be an optimistic realist. So I feel like that's a your your take is uh is a good one. You know, I, the the thing about this is like I don't worry about there being places to um, to write, to broadcast, to do podcasting, to create information. Like that's the least thing I'm worried about. What I always worry about is like, will they, w- will, will it exist where you can pay your bills, where you could have a livable wage? And, you know, I hope what doesn't happen is you have this permanent class of journalists, like at the New York Times, Washington Post, et cetera. And then the rest of the world are sort of people who are doing journalism on their, sort of their off time or their part time, which again, I would take over nothing, but that that's my hope is that there are really bright and brilliant people out there who create a new paradigm where people can, can actually make a living, uh, doing this for, you know, 20, 30 years. Last thing I want to ask you is the NBA, you know, you have, you, um, have a long and, and fan- fantastic history of covering that sport. Uh, you know, people read your work, obviously, the LA Times. You did a lot of work on the NBA, ESPN, et cetera. Um, that's, J.A., this last, like, week has been just fascinating to watch with, uh, you know, the Kyrie and sort of Dwight Howard faction, uh, other players sort of, you know, voicing what they think about a return to play or not. You have sort of LeBron and others. And, you know, where I step in, one, I think all these players should do whatever, whatever makes them comfortable and whatever, um, gives them a best sense of comfort in terms of their own personal health. First and foremost, if they choose not to play, I respect that. If they choose to play, I respect that. I will say this, I do think, and this is where I want to ask you about this. I do think that the playing represents one of the great opportunities for this league to use the media outlets like ESPN and Turner and those who will be interested in covering the NBA, like the athletic, et cetera, et cetera, to use them to help amplify their voices when it comes to issues of systemic racism and police brutality. Um, I do think that if they do end up playing, there will be a massive amount of media attention on what these guys have to say. And what these guys have to say is really important. So that's the value at the same time. Who am I to say, go into this bubble, you know, risk your health for my entertainment. So I, I, I do see that side as well. And I'm just curious how you've sort of looked at this last week in the NBA, because it's been incredibly fascinating to watch. Part of it is, is the problem that the, excuse me, the league formalized the, the plan to return before we heard the safety plan. And I do want to allow for the fact that I think the NBA is, has been ahead of things, certainly ahead of the government, when it comes to listening to the doctors and, and the scientists. And I, I think they have been planning for it all along. And that's one reason why, for example, the entire Utah Jazz traveling party was able to get tested that night with Rudy Gobert when everything basically started to shut down and that they got everybody tested. And I think they, they had a good protocol in place. So I think they, they've been thinking about this. And I, and I think there's more than we know about that they've done behind the scenes. But the fact is, they, we still haven't heard them proclaim what it is, and I'm not sure, I don't think the players have a reason to feel that there's a complete um, assurance that this is the safest possible scenario that we can create and provide for you. And so I think that's a legitimate concern. Um, 
I, I don't think participating in playing right now precludes you from from participating in the in the larger discussion that we're having in a society. And I think it does give you a platform. And maybe more importantly, it gives you money so that you can help fund those who are out there. And not everybody needs to be on the front line. In some cases, you can make a greater contribution financially. Um, but maybe... You know, maybe your role is is to to participate in this, even if it's not where you want to be, but it's it's what you need to do. And one one thing I I don't um, maybe this is cruel to me, but I, I I feel like I'm not very sympathetic when it comes to well, we'd have to be apart from our families, and you know, we ask our our armed forces to spend more time away from their families for a lower reward for a higher risk. Um, I, I feel like this is something that can be done if it's two or three months even. Um, I feel like there are sacrifices that can be made for this you know, tremendous opportunity that you have to provide for your family. And not just your family now. I think a lot of people feel even obligated to, to help out other people or, or to contribute money to, to help out for greater causes. But this is the way to do so. The mean, This is the means and the ability you have to do so. So I, I just feel like it shouldn't be either or, right? It shouldn't be either I help or I do my job. I think you can do both. And I think that applies in a lot of scenarios, right? Like you, you, you don't have to dedicate your career to, to the greater good, but um, you, can, you can certainly take time and aside from your career to help and speak and contribute. And, um, you know, maybe in this case you couldn't actually physically march, but there, there are a number of ways I think you can still have a positive impact and, and affect change. Jay, is there anything you wanted to add that I did not ask you? No, I think we covered a lot. I mean, you, you told me at the outset that there was a lot to get into. Um, I, I just, um, you know, I, I just, I just want to get back to this moment. And I, I, I hope journalistically, broader journalistically, um, that that people in our profession can can maintain the focus. I, I, I give a lecture every year about how media failed to cover Kaepernick properly in 2016 and 17. And it just evolved into the circuits about the flag and the anthem and did all these things to avoid the issue at hand. And again, we have to ask ourselves if we are liable, we're culpable for, for some of the blood that's been shed these last few years, because we didn't stop to have the conversation about the exact topics that Colin Kaepernick brought to the table and all the same things that we're going over now. And so it's really important for journalists now, and I think they're doing a better job. Um, but, you know, you saw it. Like, I, I've never seen such a sustained focus on an important topic as we had with coronavirus. And then, boom, as, stuff, as soon as stuff started burning and we had these, you know, these dramatic images for television, boom, that's all it was for an entire weekend. And there was no coronavirus coverage that weekend. And then all of a sudden come back, oh, looks like coronavirus coverage. Like, you could have done both. You could have, while your journalists were out there in the streets talking to people, you could have raised the concern, you know, and asked them, are you concerned about catching coronavirus, spreading coronavirus? You could have had an expert in the studio or, or via, you know, remote talking about what are the risks that these marchers are taking in terms of coronavirus. And it just went into a complete protest mode and we acted like coronavirus wasn't a story we acted like the presidential election isn't a story like let's 
we have enough bandwidth to cover all these things simultaneously, but we need to give the proper attention to all these important stories, and we need to get it right. We didn't get it right with Colin Kaepernick in 2016 and 17, and we saw the consequences. So it, it, this is just, a, I think, a plea to my, <laughs> my journalistic brethren to let's get this right. And we've seen some incredible work being done, some brave work being done. And um, I, I just want to say keep, keep it up and let's get it right. Well, I'm going to have you back, Jay, in a couple months. We're going to do five hours on cable news and how we could reshape it in this, uh, in this country. <laughs> well, we, we, we've seen that. Now that I've watched the CBC for two years, I, I got some ideas. I think that maybe, you know, maybe it could work. <laughs> you can't go wrong copying. I, I know the BBC. Um, you know, I used to, when I had uh, Sirius, I would, I would listen to the BBC America. I'm like, oh, my God, this stuff is so much more interesting than what we're hearing on on, on the American <laughs> news. Um, so it, exactly. it can be done. And yeah. and there, there's a hunger for it, and there's a, there's a need for it. Yeah, publicly funded it would be the, the way to go. It's a longer conversation, uh, which we'll do in another time. <laughs> uh, Jay Donde, um, obviously, uh, if you are a uh, sports uh, media fan or watcher, the name is familiar. He is the director of sports journalism, uh, at the Medill School at Northwestern University, and a longtime ESPN staffer. You see him on uh, Around the Horn, pardon the interruption, as well as obviously his work covering the NBA. Also did a lot of uh, phenomenal reporting for the Los Angeles Times. And if you are uh, someone who's on Twitter, and God help you, none of us should be on Twitter, uh, check out uh, JA's Twitter feed. That is at J-A-D-A-N-D-E, so at J. Adande, um, and uh, he always posts a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, listen, J.A., I got great respect uh, for the uh, just the career choices that you've made. I think um, your work at uh, Northwestern is incredibly important, and it's great to see that you still have a presence uh, sometimes on ESPN. It's great to catch up with you. I, I see all your stuff on Twitter, and uh, wish you and your family nothing but the best of health and success. Thanks so much for giving me some time today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on and uh, continue your important work too. All right. As I said at the top, Jeff Gluck is a NASCAR writer for the athletic. One of my excellent colleagues there and has been on the NASCAR beat since 2007. You've read his work at USA today, SB nation, NASCAR scene magazine, and he had his own Patreon funded site, Jeff Gluck, it's one of the forerunners when it came to sports writers doing Patreon. And I'm pleased to be joined by Jeff on the Sports Media Podcast. Uh, Jeff, just before we get to the issue at hand, how uh, how you doing? How's your family? Is everyone safe, healthy, and well? Yeah, you know, um, this has been a unique circumstance, obviously, for everybody um, from a sports writing perspective, especially, you know, in NASCAR, we're used to following the circus all over the place. So this is the longest I've ever been in one place. Um, I think in my adult life, I'm just still at home, you know. Um, and it's just weird not being at, at the racetracks, not traveling. So that's been an adjustment. But I'm grateful that, you know, there's <laughs> unlike a lot of my, my sports writing colleagues, that we have a live sports cover right now, um, you know, at least from TV. So it's been nice to have that back and have that distraction and be able to, you know, sort of throw ourselves into uh, into the racing again. All right, Jeff, let's uh, let's focus on the issue at hand. Last week, NASCAR announced that the display of the Confederate flag 
will be prohibited from all NASCAR events and properties. Uh, in brief or in short, how did how did this come about, and how long has this been in the making? Well, you know, it's it's something that's obviously been talked about for a while, and certainly um, a long time coming, and um, many could argue quite overdue. Obviously, um, you know, five years ago, um, in the wake of the the Dylan Roof shooting. You know, NASCAR tried to, you know, take somewhat of a stance on it. I mean, they they condemned it, and then they had the racetracks come out and say, all right, look, fans, you know, politely, we ask you to be respectful and not fly these flags anymore. We're trying to create a more inclusive environment. You know, please uh, don't bring these to the tracks. But there was no um, ban part of it. There was no enforcement. And so, naturally, as you might figure, this ended up backfiring, and fans who want to bring the Confederate flag to the track and fly them on their campers in the infield or whatever, um, you, you only saw more flags after that for a while. Um, you know, that, and it was, you know, sort of like, well, you know, the issue sort of died down, I guess. And, you know, it wasn't a hot topic. And so that just became back to, you know, accepted what was happening. Um, now, obviously things are different again, and people are calling for change. Um, NASCAR came out last Sunday, uh, or a couple Sundays ago, for the Atlanta race, and and they said, "Look, we're, we support Black Lives Matter." Um, they they started the race and then had all the drivers turn off their engines, um, and and they read a message, you know, of support uh, on the air. They had a, a African American official um, who who took a knee on pit road, and and uh, NASCAR supported that. Bubba Wallace wore and I can't breathe shirt. And so it was like, okay, this is, this is cool. NASCAR. I mean, they're, they're saying the right things, you know, but is there going to be action? And so Bubba Wallace goes on Don Lemon's show um, on CNN, I think the night after, and, you know, they're talking and, and Bubba calls for the, the flag to be banned. And I think at that point, you know, there had been conversations between Bubba and NASCAR officials about what the next step is. And he had sort of pushed for it, but, you know, doing it publicly like that, um, I don't know if NASCAR, you know, was, you know, going to do it that quickly or, or what, but wh- however it happened, um, within a day and a half later, NASCAR comes out with, with the ban. And um, it's, been, uh, it's been crazy to see the reaction um, just all over the world after that. Jeff, how enforceable, realistically, is this? It's going to be tough. And, you know, that was, I, at first, I, I was you know, sort of like, oh, I don't even know if they should should do this, which I'm ashamed to say now, because I just thought, well, this is, uh, you know, boy, I wonder if this is going to be messy, you know, like, this is, could this lead to, you know, violence at the track? And I, I, I'm, I'm kind of worried about this, you know, um, in this day and age, you know, there's going to be, you know, you, you're going to have a situation where, you know, they can't check every camper uh, RV coming into the infield, I, I would assume. And, you know, um, you know, it's going to be some, some drunken situations, I'm sure, you know, on a Saturday night at these tracks and a bunch of partiers and somebody could pull out the flag and, and then what they're going to have to send security in. And, you know, is somebody going to have a, a gun hidden or something in their RV? But, you know, I think that those are, the, those are the kind of logistics and the things that you, you figure out later. Um, you know, one of my friends pointed out that change is supposed to be messy um, and, and that, you know, if it was easy, this would have been done uh, a long time ago. So they're, they're going to have to figure out how to enforce it. 
um, you know, does this, how far does this extend? I mean, people obviously have Confederate flag tattoos or T-shirts that they wear, you know, how, you know, what, what do you do? And then the, the campground properties that surround the track too, that NASCAR might not even own, they're not going to be able to enforce that. So there's definitely a lot of questions about it. And, you know, NASCAR hasn't been able to say yet, you know, what they plan to do. They do have some time because obviously right now there's not uh, fans camping in the infield. So that's, you know, they probably have, you know, a couple months maybe to figure this out, but uh, it's, it's definitely a question. And um, I'm, I'm glad that they, they have this question though, that they're facing this, these logistics, because I think it's, it's, it's long overdue. Jeff, um, let's turn this to sort of a media discussion on this. Um, how do you anticipate that this issue will be covered heading forward from those who regularly cover NASCAR? You know, um, it's, it's been interesting, first of all, uh, and, and I think this is one advantage where it works out that NASCAR is so close with their TV partners. And right now, it's Fox's portion of the season. So they have they're doing all the races. NBC takes over um, July 4th, I think. Um, but so, you know, sometimes it's frustrating from a NASCAR standpoint, you know, or somebody who works in the, in the industry because TV, you know, has so much power. I mean, they, the two networks, I mean, it's, they've, they've invested so much money that NASCAR is listening to them on, on start times. And, you know, um, in past, you know, there had been some resistance to midweek racing and, and, you know, they're consulting on playoff formats and, and everything. I mean, NASCAR, uh, TV has so much input. But in this situation, you know, I think NASCAR being able to keep uh, their partners in the loop here. I mean, Fox, you know, in the, in the first couple of weeks of, the, of the, all this news breaking, seemed to be in lockstep with NASCAR. I mean, um, NASCAR, went at that first Atlanta race where they're saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to start the engines, bring the drivers out, stop, you know, uh, stop the cars, have the crew guys on pit road saluting this for a moment of silence. You know, Fox was all over it. I mean, every, it was, it was like a coordinated thing. You know, they, they knew everything that was going to happen and it was all laid out. So that, that placed their advantage. And then they've had some things where like the, there was a race the day of the flag ban and, you know, Fox opens the show with Mike joy reading the statement. And then Jeff Gordon looks into the camera and gives his personal feelings on it, you know, and saying, this is, this is about time. This is a great thing for everybody. So they've been able to sort of, uh, you know, address the news right off the top and certainly not, not shy away from it. You know, going forward, um, I think the story evolves a little bit. It, you know, there, there might be a pause in the coverage as far as uh, from the regular beat media, you know, once, once we get a couple weeks down the road, because the next sort of, um, you know, roadblock or, or marker, I guess, is, is, is how do they enforce it like we were talking about. And, you know, since that doesn't happen until fans come back, you're not going to, there's really no change at the track now, right? I mean, people weren't uh, bringing flags, you know, with, with nobody there. And now they're even going to have uh, a few thousand people at some of these races, but it's not, you know, you wouldn't be, people don't bring the flag into the stands that I've seen. It's, it's more the campers in the infield and, and tailgaters or stuff like that. So until those come back, I think the story might die down a little bit and things just kind of go back to normal, but it'll, it'll, uh, pop up again. Jeff, um, you know, we, we, we saw this debate in football and the NFL, sort of how much, uh, you know, how much off the field stories ultimately impact uh, viewership or attendance. And I'm one certainly with Kaepernick that uh, felt uh, 
anyone who sort of wanted to play the correlation game there was totally overblown. The the fact is, I think, and I, I don't think this is any kind of controversial or crazy statement, if you're a fan of the Buffalo Bills and a quarterback in San Francisco is protesting on the field regarding what he thinks of police brutality or systemic racism, you are not going to not watch the Buffalo Bills because this quarterback is doing this 3,000 miles away. I'm sure there are some people who left the NFL, but I think by and large, um, that's just not the case. I don't know NASCAR as well as I know the NFL. Can you give me a sense as to whether you think that this decision from NASCAR, from the body, will have any kind of impact, one, on viewership, and my sense there would be no, but two, and this is kind of an interesting one, on attendance. Could there be some tracks that um, there are people who are like, I don't like NASCAR dictating you know, my freedom of expression, even if that freedom of expression is sort of racist, uh, um, I'm not coming to the track. What do you, what do you, um, how do you sort of view those two things? Impact on viewership, impact on attendance. You know, I actually think there could be some level of impact on viewership because, you know, I, and I'm not saying it'll be big and, and certainly there'll be new fans who, you know, might now give NASCAR a chance where before they were like, you know, this isn't, this isn't for me, but, you know, the idea of, you know, to, to some NASCAR fans, and, and I, I guess let me back up for a second. First of all, I think that the majority of NASCAR fans certainly are, are not racist, are open-minded, are welcoming to people. Um, I, I haven't personally, aside from Twitter, seen any uh, examples of anybody being mistreated in any way. I mean, the, the fans I've met um, are, are very kind people, decent people who, um, would, wouldn't do anything like that. But obviously you, you see on Twitter, uh, that, you know, 10, 15% of the responses are ugly and, and you're, you know, it's just like, wow, that, that definitely does exist out there. And, you know, for that group, um, to hear NASCAR saying, we support black lives matter. We, we support official an official, uh, taking a knee on, on pit road. Um, you know, we support Bubba. we, you know, uh, NASCAR came out with a, a Pride Month tweet um, recently, and you know that that even gets those that that demographic upset, right? So, if if any if if those people suddenly go, you know, I've seen the tweets. Oh, NASCAR's is NASCAR woke? You know, is NASCAR liberal? This is this is so offensive to me. You know, I'm, I'm done. This is they've 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 gone the wrong direction now. Um, you know, so for those people, uh, yeah, you, you might lose some of them. They might be so offended that they, that they don't come back. But obviously, um, I think that, you know, taking a, a basic stance of, hey, we, we welcome everybody. Um, NASCAR is inclusive. NASCAR believes in equality. Um, we want to create a, a, a welcoming environment at, at all our, our tracks. You know, if you get rid of the people who um, are close-minded to that basic premise, uh, you know, it's it's addition by subtraction. I think NASCAR, you know, even if they see any sort of a dip, they can look themselves in the mirror and go, well, you know, we did the right thing. I mean, it we'll we'll, we'll work on keeping to build new fans, but you know, we we don't need these people anyway. I mean, and that's a bold step for NASCAR, which has always been, you know, as long as I've been around, you know, about the bottom line. Obviously, it's you know, like any business, and it's I you know, obviously, I, I know we're talking about this, and it's it's late. I mean, you could you said. You know, anybody could have said they could have done this 10, 20 years ago, but it does take some level of, of courage with, with them now because things haven't been like they were in NASCAR as far as attendance and, and viewership. And 
they've been scrambling to to try to keep their fan base happy um, over the last ten years or so. It's there's been a dip, and so to say, you know what, this whole segment of fans who we knew were still there, and and this is our stance, and and knowing that that's going to drive some of them away, um, you know, I I I think NASCAR showed some guts here, and um, you know, again, I I recognize that it's late, so I, it's 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 a tricky thing to talk about, but it, I think it was. It's a good move on their part because they they put morals over money. You know, Jeff. The one thing I'll just end with. Um, I'm not sure if I've told you this, uh, but you know, a long time ago at Sports Illustrated, I um, you know, Ed Hinton had come to work for us, and I, I fact check a lot of NASCAR stuff. So that was sort of my first intro introduction to the sport, and started watching it. And yeah, you know, I found it pretty interesting. You know, uh, who would have imagined Yankee from New York finding it interesting? But um, uh, and then I had an assignment where I went to six tracks over an eight-week period for a big NASCAR fan poll that we did for um, Sports Illustrated Commemorative Magazine. So I got to go to Daytona and Charlotte, Sonoma, um, Dover, I think. Is that right? Yeah, that track. Um, and, boy, man, my, my it's you get old, Jeff. You, you lose your memory. Charlotte and um, one other track, Chicago. Actually, I went to it was Chicago was around there. And the one thing I learned from going through the RVs and meeting, honestly, like not, not hyperbole, thousands of NASCAR fans was that whatever stereotype like you think exists is not the case. Like I, I met NASCAR fans who had PhDs. I met NASCAR fans who um, were not your traditional like sort of stereotype. You think some like, you know, Southern good old boy talking X. There were certainly some of those. But like I was really one, and I'm not. This will, I'll never obviously have an assignment like that again. But the one thing I'm I always appreciated was that it changed my perception to sort of stereotype an entire group because that's just not the case with NASCAR fans. I think people would be surprised. That said, there's certainly that's still that element there. But um, I imagine your sort of experience and you're there all the time is similar. It's that you. You'd be surprised, I guess, is what I would sort of say as to who's a NASCAR fan and who's a devout NASCAR fan. Absolutely, yeah, and and you know, I I do these um, uh, since 2009. I've I've been doing these tweet ups where, um, you know, on race day every morning, uh, we we meet up, you know, with a group of followers, say, hey, we're going to meet here and we talk. We just talk racing, and um, you know, it's it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, people from all walks of life, people of color. And, you know, they had always sort of, um, you know, you, you, you hear their opinions on what's going on and you're right. It's, it's, you just, it hits home every week that there's no one label you can put on this group, except that they like racing, you know? And, you know, I think that it's been interesting this, this whole experience since the flag ban, because, you know, you sort of, you sort of, yeah, I didn't grow up a NASCAR fan or by any means, I, I didn't go to a race until I started covering it. And so you, you arrive in this environment with these stereotypes and you think, okay, well, you know, this is NASCAR nation thinks this way and, and all this stuff. And, and since the flag ban, you know, for the first time, I'm almost like, wait a minute. I, I think those, that, that, what I thought was that stereotype is the vast minority. Most of the people are, are thrilled about this ban. I mean, most of the fans that, that I've seen from even on Twitter, despite the ugly responses and people I've blocked and stuff like that, who are just, you know, clearly racist. I, I do think that's, again, you know, 10, 15%. Most people are like, this is awesome. I can't, this is long overdue. I'm so happy about this way to go NASCAR. 
They're applauding them for their stances. And it sort of feels like um, this isn't their NASCAR. Like the people that, you know, you, you would think, oh, that's the racist redneck kind of element. That's It's not their NASCAR now. I think it's a whole new NASCAR um, in terms of the demographics of the people who like it. And it's just a matter of saying to those people, look, look, if you're going to come to everybody else's NASCAR now, it's inclusive. So you've got to adapt um, and you've got to change your views or don't come. And, and NASCAR saying, you know, if we lose you as a fan, that's fine. That, that's, uh, that's new and it's refreshing to see. Jeff Gluck is a NASCAR writer for The Athletic and he has uh, worked that beat for uh, more than a decade now. Check his excellent stuff on The Athletic. I've always appreciated what he does. Jeff, thanks for giving. I know it's a busy, uh, it's a busy time for you. Thank you for uh, giving me a little bit of time on the Sports Media Podcast. And, um, and I will see you, uh, as the kids say, over the interwebs on our, on our site at some time. Thanks so much, uh, thanks so much for being on. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, this is a, one of my favorites, so I, I appreciate you having me on. Always glad to be on. And, uh, yeah, hopefully uh, see you in person at a race sometime. That would be fun. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to my guests, Jay Adande and Jeff Gluck, for uh, their thoughts and some interesting conversation between those two. If um, if you like this kind of content, if you like uh, sports media discussions, please uh, head to our archives, and you can check out some of our 100-plus shows. The show prior to this was... Um, one with four guests, Lisa Wilson of The Athletic, ESPN's Michael Eaves, Raina Cash of the Savannah Morning News, and Sportsnet's Donovan Bennett. And they discussed how they, these are four black sports journalists, and they discussed how they have processed the last couple weeks in the United States following the death of George Floyd, as well as where the sports media industry is with relation to race and hiring it's uh some really i I thought those guys were unbelievably thoughtful and uh and i really appreciate their time so that's the episode right before this one then prior to that we had john oran of the sports business daily a regular guest in the athletics katie strang's been doing some incredible reporting on um uh the issues of uh of sexual uh assault in youth hockey prior to that booger mcfarland ESP analyst on his Monday Night Football stay and what's next for him, as well as NASCAR producer Barry Landis on how you produce a NASCAR race in the age of coronavirus. Before that, Tom Reducci. Before that, Bob Costas. Check out all of these um, episodes if you like, and uh, basically the way this podcast stays is if you leave us a five-star review and a nice comment. Obviously, my bosses check that out, and they they uh, they react to it. That's pretty much how this podcast stays on. It's not a big time podcast so we need all the audience we can get my thanks to patrick antonetti as always for producing this podcast thanks to sean cherry for his work as well thanks to everybody cadence 13 chris corcoran spencer brown john mcdermott and uh and thank you the audience for uh, listening hope everybody out there is healthy staying safe and we'll see you again real soon on the sports media with richard deitch podcast